Hey y'all, welcome back to the Shifting Schools podcast. This is Trisha Friedman flying the plane solo this week, but fear not, Jeff is going to be back with us soon. I'm really excited about this episode because we're speaking with one of the authors of what has been one of my lifetime, career-wide, all-time favorite professional development reads. The name of that book is Becoming a Totally Inclusive School, and the authors have provided us with a special discount. So as the result of this conversation, if you've not picked up that book yet, head over the show notes, find out how to get some savings on it. The author that I am overjoyed to be speaking to this week is Angeline Au, who happens to be an international educator, learning and development specialist, workshop leader, school evaluator, and pedagogical leader. She has worked all over the world. You are going to find a link to her website to explore her many multifaceted services so that your school can connect with her. Before we dive into that conversation, listeners, I want to remind you that Jeff and I still have a few seats remaining inside our three-month generative AI cohort. That cohort runs from August to September through to the end of October. Each of those months, you're going to get a webinar, you're going to get lots of resources, you're going to get specific, curated, tailored resources that are based on your requests. Jeff and I are keeping that cohort to just 50 participants so that we can ensure a personalized learning experience so that your questions about generative AI and education are the focus of that cohort. Again, to learn more, head over to the show notes. You're also going to find a special promo code to get some savings on that generative AI cohort. We only have a few spots remaining. uh, So again, please reach out if you do have any questions about that. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming to the Shifting Schools podcast, Angeline Now. I would love to start our conversation focused actually on the title of your book, Becoming a Totally Inclusive School. I'm hoping you actually might clarify uh, the why of what I see as the operative word, and that is the totally. What are you hoping that word might indicate to prospective readers? Well, thanks, Trisha, for this question, because I think um, it was really a fundamental part of our construction of the whole book, because what we were noticing that is that there are a lot of books about specific intersections of inclusion. So, for example, you can get a great book about what it means to be more inclusive for diverse genders and sexualities, or about race, um, or about uh, learn- learner variability, or, or um, you know, new non neurotypical um, learners, etc. But there wasn't a book written for education that was all-encompassing. And also because I believe that there's been a shift around what being inclusive means. And so in the past, in schools that I have worked with and systems that I'm familiar with, um, it's very much been about learner variability and um, learning needs and and students with disabilities. And, um, And so this idea of being totally inclusive was was our attempt of expanding the viewpoint of what inclusion means and um, to also include intersections of a learner's diverse and evolving identity. So regarding race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, 
class, disability, age, religion, language, um, etc. So in essence, really, that whole totally part is uh, our attempt of thinking about how comprehensively we can be inclusive, how intersectional we can be inclusive as well. I appreciate that because I, I also think, you know, the idea sometimes when schools are trying to lean into becoming more inclusive, I think sometimes we can almost become overwhelmed with the idea of, well, if we're only focusing on this aspect and we're not looking at this, you know, how can we look at all things simultaneously at the same time? And I think for schools who even are at the start of the journey and they're beginning to look I think once you get started, it almost opens up your mind to, oh, now I know what it is also going to mean. Uh, you know, a, a conversation that I had with a group recently, they were actually talking about the idea of having a fragrance-free office space. Um, and they had a few members of their team that were advocating for why they needed that. And it kind of led them into other conversations. And I know other people have voice this more articulately that the idea is when you are working on your DEIJ work, it's sort of once you begin to kind of like pull on the thread of one issue, you're going to be able to see how it connects in other areas. Uh, so the very, maybe perhaps the better way of me framing this is for schools that are saying, I don't know where to get started, just get started with that initial step. I don't know. Do you do you feel like the the book helps people at the beginning of their journey because I I also don't want that title of the book to seem like oh gosh, becoming totally inclusive. We're still at the very early beginning stages of this work. Do you see the book as being positioned both for schools that are at that starting point as well as schools that have done a lot of learning and are years into their journey? That was the longest lead into a question ever. You're still here and you're still awake. Thank you. <laughs> hey, and thanks, Tricia. Um, I, I do think that um, I'm hoping that uh, we will. When we wrote the book, you know, we wanted it to be a guide for teachers and school leaders, and a guide for anyone who's going to pick up and want to go on this journey. So whether you are at the beginning or whether you're, you know, wherever it is you're located, really. Um, it will help you um, move forward in that journey. And I think that um, the reason why I say that um, it's going to be useful for that is because it it really gives like a, a big foundational overview. So whether you have some um, gained some experience as well, it's always useful to, I think, to look at our perspectives and what that's like, because we also try and tie that in to all of the other aspects of schooling. And so we're thinking about the mindsets and behaviors that educators need in order to move forward with DIJ work, but also the um, structures and infrastructure um, and the policies and systems that, that will help accelerate the work in your institution as well. And so, you know, bringing together those concepts, I think can be difficult, um, but you know, all of our learners that we are serving in our schools, you know, they lead intersectional lives. And so if we want to bring this work forward, 
we're not engaging in you know what is called oppression olympics right so thinking about oh well if i mention this aspect if i talk about race then oh you're not talking about this um or if i'm talking about you know lgbtq plus and and pride i'm not talking about something else and um and that's i think um uh, polarizing and uh and we need to think of um total inclusivity not as like an endpoint but as a concept that we need to embrace so that we are valuing individuals for who they are. That's, I think, what I appreciated the most about the book, if I were forced to pick something, is I think that you, as you say, it's it's the idea of a very human perspective on this that is grounded from the perspective of practitioners who very much get what school life is about. So um, while you do have this like overarching look at why we need to do this in schools, you really deliver the how piece. Um, you know, and and listeners, you might be thinking, is this book like 700 pages long? Like that's a lot to do, but it's so economical. Um, I mean, this is a book that you can read within a weekend, like literally within a single weekend. And you very much have a lot of practical pieces um, that I think is great. So I'm not sure how you managed to do both that piece of here is a foundational framework that I think really helps folks understand from a theoretical lens our why, but the in terms of ideas of how do we move forward, you also delivered that as well, which I don't think every book is able to do you know some books really do that deep dive into theory and i know there's a place for that but i i feel like anecdotally i have a lot of conversations with fellow educators that really feel like i need some of that practical support in terms of working with my colleagues on those next steps on some of those action pieces that really get it that you know school is so so complex and there are so many nuances um, and I, I don't know, maybe that was a part of the the pre-work that, that you and your co-author did, like that you wanted to grapple with that piece, that school's not simple? Definitely. I think that um, schools are, you know, complex institutions full of humans who are themselves complex and you you can never predict what humans are going to do next. And But I think that at, at the essence, what we really wanted to the with book and when we were you know thinking of a title even it was like you know becoming a totally inclusive school and then initially it was a practical guide for teachers and school leaders and then i kind of thought to myself well the the practical sense of it would be best judged by our readers so it's really great to hear how that you know that um that people you're engaging with are sharing that it is very practical because the one thing that we really wanted it to be was that but we were also um realized that uh we we could not be the judges of that you know we would uh, we, that was our aim but um the, the the practicalness of it would be in terms of how people will be able to interpret what's in the book and be able to contextualize it and then transfer it into their own school context and so I think for me I'm a concept-based um, curriculum designer and so that's where I kind of took those um, design kind of principles to the book 
So focusing on really understanding the why and uh, and understanding the concepts around it so that you can transfer things practically into your school. Because I think that if um, if it's not those kind of foundational um, pieces, like, and it was more full of like, oh, here's a exercise or here are things you can do, or here's what we did in our school that made, that worked, but nothing's going to transfer directly into a different context. You have a different school population. You have different educators around you. You have your school has a different foundational history. Your school has a different mission and vision. And so we must contextualize this work. And so our the way which they, we then wrote the book was really focusing on what are the key concepts? What are the big ideas here? And what's behind this? And what does the research tell us that uh, would work when we're then designing how do we transfer that into implementation in schools and and so that's how this the book came came about and um and similarly in in good concept based curriculum design we have to think about well what does success look like for us and when what does um an assessment plays a huge role in that and so in chapter 9 of the book you know we 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 devised a continuum for that reason because we wanted to very be very explicit about well Whilst we, you know, are building the foundational guiding principles all throughout the book that we want you to then reflect on and commit to and then apply, um, we also want to make it clear that this is what we think um, total inclusivity looks like on one end and what exclusive schools look like on the other end so that we're aware of uh, where we are on the journey um, and be able to self-assess that and then be able to self-determine also what next steps will work best for your school. Thank you for explaining that because I I think that idea of what you've done with this book in terms of giving the guidance, but also giving the flexibility, I think maybe that's the other crucial ingredient about why this book stood out to me so much this year is because it really did seem to authentically honor the educator and their expertise. Um, You know, and, and you're your context specifically you know as a a concept driven educator that really shines through too because i'd like to talk about a few concepts that the book digs into in detail on page 96 you invite us to think about what you refer to as the three a's those are advocacy alliances and accountability can you unpack how they assist us as change makers because the book also is not saying hey you know, as you were saying, it's schools are very complex. We're not just talking about making the change and then, oh, it sticks. Uh, we know that's not how anything in life really works. We also need to do that work of sustaining any change uh, that we're able to create. So can you talk a little bit more about the three A's? Absolutely. And uh, I'd like to start with alliances, I think, because I, um, Audrey Lord, there's a quote from them that says there is no liberation without community and i think that this work you know we need to be doing this together because you know our this learners in our school are part of that community in the school right so even if you were to do everything in your own classroom within your own spaces that that learner goes off to different adults in this in the space they have parents um they have and and um, the decisions that governors make in a school is going to also impact how you work so we need to do this together. So I think a part of being a change maker is being able to build your community, whether it be you know yourself and just your team 
And uh, so that's a community right there. Like if you if you teach in a team or you you are you have the you know privilege of of being able to collaborate, um, or it's within the team of you and your learners in each individual classroom. We need to be able to do this together. And then of course the wider team of your school and and so on. And so without so in, and I think one of the bigger divides as well, like a lot of this work that I've seen in schools is um, either people talk about these grassroots DEI advocacy that's happening um, and how and, and quite often, you know, people will then talk about leadership in a school They talk about the admin and how like, you know, that becomes an obstacle and a barrier. And then possibly the other way around, you know, the um, leaders of the school are saying that, well, you know, our teachers don't have the skills, they don't have the mindsets, or I'm constantly managing emotions and, and people's fragility around these issues as well. And so I think the alliances need to be built in multiple directions because everyone has a role in this the same way that if you were to roll out, you know, digitalization in your school, everyone plays a role in that. And, and this is no different. And um, so we need to make sure that we get everyone um, understanding why this work is important and then also being able to co-construct how. How are we going to make this happen? Um, and how are we going to then hold ourselves accountable, which is the other A? Um, and I think that uh, that accountability it needs to needs to be in two um, directions. So one being that communal accountability and solidarity that we build with each other. So that goes back to the alliances. But another is also how do we hold ourselves accountable to this work? And and because I think that, you know, we we need to learn more like i i'm still learning more about and um where injustice shows up or how colonization is impacting my work and and how i see and view the world through my own history as a migrant from malaysia to australia and now living in germany and so for me you know I, how do i hold myself accountable to keep learning um and to keep thinking about how that learning impacts my decisions as an educator and I think the accountability piece too is a is like a commitment right so it's like a commitment to learning and to being a person that is trustworthy so so if I hold myself accountable then others are going to trust my decisions and my actions um, and also being clear about what I think or what the community um, is accepting as acceptable behavior and what perhaps may not have been, you know, sort of acceptable in on paper in your policies, but is behavior that has been accepted for such a long time, right? And so we need to hold each other to account as well. And that raises the expectations and that um, helps us build a common um, language and a common um you know, code of acceptability that we think that is the standard in which we want to hold ourselves accountable and live that we that I hope that we hope is much more inclusive and um, and provides a lot of equitable access for all our learners. I love that, and I want to come back to that idea of common language, kind of within the realm of our need to always be looking for language that is more inclusive, recognizing like language always has evolved, it will continue to do so. 
Um, and what you just mentioned about you holding yourself accountable to continue to learn. You know, we're getting close to the summer break. And it's interesting. I've got a lot of folks who are talking about um, some of the professional learning that they want to do over the summer. Your book, of course, is a great one for them. But I was having a conversation recently with someone that I, I almost feel like when you work in education, almost anything that you consume kind of is a professional development, professional learning book. And your your piece on thinking about common language, thinking about how language helps us understand what it is we're trying to do. And, you know, schools, educational practitioners often have metaphors that in their community, maybe they hear again and again. And I've been thinking a lot about some of the metaphors or analogies that we use in schools that um, maybe we want to rethink. And maybe it's something about this time of the year that I'm thinking that way. But I've been uh, listening, actually, to the audible version of a book called God, Human, Animal, Machine, which is uh, somewhat about AI and about why we're kind of experiencing this AI boom right now. Uh, but also the author talks a lot about the significance of the metaphors that we use. And she ran this experiment where she asked a group, I want you to try to describe the process of thinking, but you can't use any metaphors or analogies that are related to computers. And the group really couldn't come up with it. And they were saying like, even okay, like processing or uh, my bandwidth. And that this is sort of the way that we've come to talking about our thinking processes. So my question here finally for you is, um, what is some of the reading that you are maybe hoping to get to or podcasts or film or whatever? Just, you know, you, you mentioned you are, a, a again, like a lifelong learner in, in the truest sense of that word. I wonder if there's anything that's kind of coming up for you that you want to be or books that you're looking for um, over the summer that are, again, maybe related to what you just talked about in terms of language, our communities, the relational piece, um, because even that I find, yes, this very much is relational work, but how many of us have had really true, great training in terms of listening, collaboration, these skills that are so important to this work. So uh, that's my very long-winded way of asking you, like, um, are, are there any things that you're looking forward to digging into that, as I mentioned, like on the face, they might not be so-called professional development texts, but I am willing to bet like you'll take something away from them as well. Uh, good question. So this summer, I'm actually heading to Sydney, which is winter um, in Sydney, uh, where I'll be visiting some family um, and a book that I have had sitting on my um, my bedside table for a long time is um, Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu. And and the reason um, why I, I make a connection to that specific book now, because there are a bunch of other books sitting on that shelf as well, <laughs> uh, is, is, is like you were saying that, you know, we, we learn things and it will impact us and how we, we view um, what we do in our role as educators, because schools are a reflection of society. And also we have so much power as educators to um, shape society as well, right? And um, and 
dark emu and there's also a young dark emu which is a a, a ch children's book kind of um version of it is is from an an aboriginal um first nations australian um who wrote about the agricultural rural um you know expertise and and uh knowledge of indigenous australians and and ha it was quite um you know it's quite referred to a lot um and as well and it's pretty seminal of rethinking and relooking at um first nations knowledge and the way in which you know colonizers have thought that you know well the, if the land is not typically like you know we didn't no one put a fence up and grazed cattle so that mustn't be agriculture um meanwhile they had a very very sophisticated system of living and working the land where it's so abnormal to grow grass <laughs> and cultivate a garden but actually to use fire as a way to, for agricultural regeneration and growth and um and so you know that was one thing that i've been wanting to delve into a bit quite a bit and and also because um you know living in berlin i've been very privileged to have these opportunities and i actually like shook hands with bruce pasco because he came to the literary festival here in berlin um where um his book was discussed and he's also a, a poet and so he he wrote some some poetry and um and also in the last um this this academic year so i think it was back in october um we had the seven sisters which is um Ab indigenous aboriginal art that came and um and part of the opening of the exhibit um uh there was a, a film screenings of different films um during that time and i went to uh watch one where um it was about a, an aboriginal boy who came in and and was um, failing through the education system that wasn't designed because it doesn't value the knowledge that is passed down in these oral histories, including, you know, how to work with fire to regenerate the bush. And and so like that kind that's kind of how it all ties in. And so all of these different mediums and then and then taking, you know, my eight-year-old son at the time through through that um, exhibition um, and then kind of th thinking about, okay, what are the different ways of knowing, understanding, and seeing the world? And I think that when I think then of the beautiful diversity we have in front of us in our classrooms and in our schools, that, that stays with me because I think what are the different ways of knowing, understanding, interpreting, and and making sense of the world that that our students have, whether they come from a different culture, they have different ethnicities, or they have different languages, or even just because they're of a different generation than I am now, they're going to see the world differently. Um, and and so, how do we value that and truly value that as being um, something that is going to help us grow and keep learning? I do think your book is one that's going to help folks see their school communities differently from an assets-based perspective. Um, so before I move on to our final question, first of all, thank you for recommending that book. I am going to add it to my summer reading as well. Thank you for pointing me to a brand new author. Um, and I guess you could say of all books, they're sort of best experience when you are reading them with someone else. Your book, I, I find, becoming a, a totally inclusive school, 
I think for anyone who is reading this text, even if you can get one more person from your school community to be reading it alongside of you, I think the experience is going to be expansive. And I say that in part because of the continuum you mentioned earlier that's inside of your book. I feel like you really need a thought partner who also is in your context to kind of leverage that continuum. I might be wrong and tell me if, if you think I am. Um, how would you, if I'm right, how might you see actually a team? And I always, when I use that word, a team could be two people, it could be 15, it could be 50. What do you think a team might do to engage with the continuum inside of your book? I know you are right. And I think that that's also the feedback I've received from people reading the book. They read the book, they um, engage with the continuum in chapter nine, and they immediately want to share it. Um, and so, because, and, and that's great because, you know, we want people to use it as a tool to help you self-assess where you think your school is at. And so there are two entry points where you can do that. So, for example, you could already have a way in which you're surveying the your school's landscape and, and, and um, maybe it's identifying um, aspects where um, your community might not be feeling a sense of belonging or they want to improve certain areas of your school. And so you already have that information and then you can read the continuum and say, with that information, we think we are here. Um, or you can also look at the continuum and then think about, okay, what what are my kind of perspectives um, about where I think my school is at? And what do I want to find out more about? Or what do I not have enough, um, you know, kind of data about at this point in time? And so it might also help you identify your areas of inquiry into how you, or into different things that you might need to know more about before making a decision about um where you would like to grow as a school. Um, and so the continuum can also work in that way. You know, look at it together first, have a conversation because my perspective about what's happening in one aspect of the school could be very different than someone else who's sitting in the secondary school math department who has an office above the gym that I never get to, right? And so, and so definitely try and do that as a team. And also a lot of people have said, I want to share this with my leadership team or leaders have said they've sat together as a leadership team and looked at the continuum so that they can better identify um, where there are pockets of that they can leverage also because they might say, oh, yeah, we do this. We do this well. And then someone else might say, oh, but we're doing that over here, but not over there. Right. And so so it's it's meant to be a conversation starter. Um, but it is something that is based on people's perceptions of of where they think they're at. And if you can back that up with some some data and and you know, I encourage you to look at street data um, from the book and work of um Shane Safir and Yamila Duggan. and um because it, you know, we need to also be more wide about what we think of as data. and and then that's one thing. But also the continuum, you know, it talks about mindsets and behaviors on one end and the in, in the systems and infrastructure on another end. And it talks about what's typically found or missing in each stage of the continuum. And and many people have said, well, we can't pick a stage of development because we have some things here and we have some things there. And I and my response to that is, 
okay, but now you know, and this is what you think, right? And so how can we use the some things that we do have to help us with what's like maybe not there? Like, so if you have mindsets and behaviors that are going to be conduits for change, then how can we use that to build the infrastructure that we need? Or we have some of the policies and practices like that, or maybe the policies, but maybe not the embedded practices, but we have some of the policies. And so how can we use that and leverage it to build a shared understanding that will help us cultivate the mindsets and behaviors that will help us as well? Because both of those things are, are conduits for change. And I think the continuum, I hope, will help people self-identify what they have um, and what they can leverage and what they need to work on next. And that's exactly, I think, what I was trying to get at with the assets-focused perspective here. And I know both you and Dr. Hollins, you know, having had the luxury of seeing, experiencing you both in action as professional development providers, I've always felt like that's the way that you work with schools and practitioners. And I know that many schools will or folks will be listening to this and will perhaps be thinking, OK, great. Yes, I do want to read this alongside a few colleagues. And I know that you and Dr. Hollins are also working with schools to help groups take those next steps, um, you know, in, in terms of doing the leveraging, in terms of, um, you know, as you were describing that, I feel like that's also what you're saying is like, this book is going to help you and your teammates find a little bit of friction, which I think is important too, right? Have some of that almost like generative debate. For schools who would like to take the book a little bit further and want some more support, some more guidance, um, can you talk a little bit about to kind of the menu of options that you and Dr. Hollins might provide? Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, so I do a lot of work with schools and and also um, some coaching of individuals as well as um, providing an intercultural development inventory services as well. And um, and Sadie, Dr. Hollins, is very, very um, good at um, helping us. We continue to write. And so um, the two of us continue to write some articles um, to help unpack aspects of the book. And so we do have some out there um, that people can dip into as well. And, and each of the book's chapters in section one and two also have reflection questions, guidance, and, and so on at the end. So you can kind of self-guide your way through um, you know, um, reflecting on the book both as an individual and as teams, and um, and wherever Sadie or I can serve you, um, do reach out and contact us as well. Um, if we can um, offer a a workshop virtually or on your school campus, um, so that uh, we can learn in community together. And and in and in many ways, I think then the way I like to work with schools is really to get to know them and um and because i because similar to an aspect of a question i didn't answer earlier which was um, the advocacy part um and so in the book there are these what we call the seven eyes of advocacy and um and so those eyes are really how i like to plan <laughs> pd also in many ways so i want to be intentional for how i can help you so I, that involves getting to know who you are where you are in your stage of the journey and what you as a community needs next. And, and then being able to co-construct that together, I think is really important. And then designing learning experiences that are invitational and inquiry driven, right? So, because it's really, 
this work will will not have any impact if a consultant comes in and just says, oh, you know, here's my recipe, do this and then leave. And um, But really to hopefully build advocates in the school itself um, with the tools to continue on with your own inquiries. And then, of course, like the other eyes of being an advocate is to be interactive and um and to kind of see the interconnectivity of things right so so engaging in in interactive communal um, conflict as you were saying and discussions and working out our tensions and seeing the connections between how one thing in in your school related to DIJ work is going to impact your child protection work your um, your PSE, you know, social emotional learning work, your etc., um, or your design of learning and teaching, and how you assess, and so that interconnectivity is really important as well. And um, and then obviously thinking about how impactful, um, however I work with your school is going to be. So I do want to know also, and this is something that I, I, I kind of try and work out, like I don't like coming into schools who just tell me and say, oh, we want a session on unconscious bias. I'm like, okay, I could do that. I could charge you this amount of money, but is it going to be impactful? Yeah. And how does it fit in with your wider DEI strategy? And so, and that's, I guess, my way of being intrepid because <laughs> uh, I, I like to, um, yeah, it's, it's a risk also, you know, sometimes as a as an author or independent consultant to you know say no to work or have my boundaries around that but um but i i think that no everyone wants to have an impact and that includes us and so we will take on projects where we know that you are also committed to the work yeah i appreciate that because i think anything that comes across as like a tick box superficial activity as you were saying it's not going to have that that long lasting change which is what we are looking for um and that's that's kind of like a a beautiful description of what i think you were talking about trying to do in process it's you know again that book i mentioned earlier talks a lot about emergence uh theory and talks about it both in the in the realm of like machine learning but also in the network of trees and how we've got all these like roots deep underground that are communicating with one another in ways that we're kind of just now better able to understand a little bit. And I think that's the kind of professional development you're talking about too, is thinking about all of these deep rooted connections and how they're going to support one another and inform um, what ends up kind of, you know, growing hopefully into a, a really productive, beautiful, like forest landscape, uh, if you will. So if it's okay with you, I will then be leaving your email address over there in the show notes. You mentioned, um, you know, again, that you've continued to produce some smaller snippets, some smaller articles. I'd love to leave the link to one of those in the show notes. Do you want to give a shout out just to um, a, perhaps a recent piece and let folks know what that's about? Sure. Um, we have one. Um based around the um, seven eyes of advocacy and but we pull out what it means to be intrepid because and also largely because we wanted to expand a little bit further about how taking risks looks different for people who do not have the privileges that um that some people who have privileged identities um you know will 
benefit from. And so, you know, when as a, for example, as a migrant, um, a, a visible minority in Germany, for me to take risks in some of the things I do looks very different than someone who looks, you know, white and maybe and male. As, and, um, and so we wanted to unpack that further. So there's that article that um, we're very happy to share with you. Yeah, and and another one where we talk about um, change infrastructure and um, pull out the um, the um, total inclusivity change model that we we looked at as well. And so yeah, so that we just kind of like draw on different aspects of the book um, through our engagements with different educators and that what we're learning and continue to learn so that we can expand and hopefully also point people back to um, what we um, believe to be a valuable resource. And, and we want to thank the community for engaging with the book. And many people have said that they're going to be reading it over the summer. And some schools have said, told me recently, they've bought 50 copies for their whole leadership team or their DI team and as well. And so we're also going to leave um, in the show notes a, um, a flyer that will lead you to a 20% discount um, if you're interested and in, in we'll buy the book um, from, from Rutledge um, directly. Fantastic. And again, listeners, it's, it is such a remarkable text. As I said, you can, not that you need to rush to get through it, but it is so comprehensive within like such a, a short, it's, it's not a lengthy book. So um, I really just was so like mind blown over how much guidance, the questions that you offer as well, the conversation starters that you have there in really an economical format. So thank you again. It's an excellent book. Listeners, if you would also like to engage with the authors online or ping them on social media, I'm going to include those accounts as well, because it's been great to see so many educators from all around the world engage with the book and, um, and, and share their thinking. So thank you again for coming on this podcast to talk more about it. Listeners, to learn more about becoming a totally inclusive school, you can head over to the show notes. Um, I would say it's definitely one of my top five professional development books that I would recommend from the past year for sure. So thank you again for putting it out there into, um, into the universe. Thank you very much, Trisha, for having us, uh, for having me on your um, podcast and, uh, and also for sponsoring and amplifying our work. Thank you. My pleasure. 